0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The biggest change between this version and previous seasons of this podcast is that there are so many new ways to get involved with the Regenerative Skills community and fast-track your learning. If you're ready to take the next step, I've created a wealth of resources at different subscription levels to fit both your time and financial budget. There are resource packets that accompany each episode, full, unedited interviews, free book giveaways, invitations to live panel discussions with experts, and bi-monthly skill building calls to explore solutions, connect with support groups, and share your journey. For those of you who want more personalized guidance, I even have a couple of openings for one-on-one consulting. This weekly podcast is just the beginning. Find the subscription that's right for you through our Patreon link on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the sixth of the monthly expert panel discussions. Now, as I mentioned before, each month I'll be hosting discussions and debate between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration land management, and a lot more. Now, in this session, I hosted a discussion on the holistic management framework with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers which is a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now in this panel I got to speak with three of the most experienced and influential educators from the global network of Savory Hubs in order to share their knowledge about the wide applications of the holistic management framework. Now since holistic management is often only associated with animal grazing, I wanted to hear from the women today about how relevant and influential it can be for people not only in other types of farming businesses, but also in other aspects of life. Now, in my work with the farming community that we're building across Europe, the topic of holistic management keeps coming up because of this framework's focus on managing the complexity that other forms of decision-making work to simplify and reduce. In contrast to those methods, the idea of managing anything, from a business to a community, relationship, or government holistically, involves understanding the whole and all of the complexities within it. This is especially necessary when working with living systems and the unpredictable aspects that come with it. Since these discussions are longer than the regular weekly episodes, I'll keep this intro short and jump right into the introductions for our panelists, starting with Precious Piri. She is a member of the Regeneration International Steering Committee, as well as uh, serves on the RI's Africa Coordinator. She's also a training and development specialist in regenerative environmental issues and community organizing. She recently founded an organization called Earth Wisdom, a network which she formed immediately after her full-time nine-year career with the Savory Hub in Zimbabwe. Her work focuses on training rural communities and collaborating with networks in Africa to reduce poverty, rebuild soils, and restore food and water security for people, livestock, and wildlife. And we've also got Sheila Cook with us today, who works to enable farmers to regenerate soils whilst attaining a higher quality of life. As a hub leader for 3LM, land and livestock management for life, and an accredited field professional with the Savory Institute, Sheila is developing a network of learning hubs, accredited educators, and educational outcome verified producers of food and fiber. And that leads us to Sarah Gleason, who is a first generation bison rancher based in Hesperus, Colorado? She entered ranching after building a career first in consumer marketing and later in advocacy for regenerative agriculture and conservation. After working for multiple years with the Savory Institute and holistic management practitioners worldwide, Sarah launched into full time ranching herself. She began her business in 2016 when she purchased her first 15 bred bison. Gleason Bison is a holistically managed grass-fed bison operation committing to serving its community, regenerating the environment, and producing thriving animals. Now, to get us started, I want to start with a bit of an ambitious question. And I would love to know, before we get into the technical aspects of holistic management and grazing, perhaps from each of you, a little bit about the use of this program of holistic management and the way of making decisions that it outlines, and how it's affected your own work and relationship to the land, perhaps starting with Precious.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Um, So hi, everyone. And I'm really glad to be on this panel with Sheila and Sarah. Um, They are such incredible inspiration uh, of mine, personally. And uh, I'm so glad that we're here today. well, it's tonight on my end. <laughs> okay, so basically, I think my journey with holistic management started um, when I was very young and I uh, was still in college, and um, I bumped into the amazing work that they were doing in the rural communities where I actually live. So, the Savory Hub here in Zimbabwe is literally within the lands that I grew up, it's called Wange communal lands. So, I mean, to go straight into what you've asked um, Oliver, I think holistic management is really beyond just wildlife management or land management. It really is an integral part of life of anyone who has started the journey um, because every other decision after that, you do not, make decisions just the way that we used to before you actually encountered the whole body of knowledge. Um, and I I work directly and I still collaborate with the Savory Hub here in Zimbabwe, which is called the Africa Center for Holistic Management and consistently have been really privileged to be in contact and in some instances really sit under Alan Savory and Jordi Butterfield is they continuously um, they continuously share their new lessons. So the learning is never ending and I think we continue to evolve with the journey and most parts it has affected how I relate to people, how I relate to the land that I manage, how I relate to the programs that I design because I actually work in um, community-owned pieces of land where of social organizing is also involved over and above the technical aspects of holistic management. So I think it has really affected how I just relate to things and think through things in general. So yeah, that's broad and <laughs> but that's how I would tackle it.
0: Fantastic. Sheila, would you like to jump in and tell us how this management system has affected your own life and your work?
2: Oh, sure. Thanks, Oliver. And I, too, am so delighted to be here with Precious and Sarah. Thank you for having us. Um, Interestingly, uh, I'm not a farmer. I've never been a farmer. Um, And what attracted uh, my husband, Christopher, and me to holistic management is the fact that it's holistic. And um, our work... Um, prior to encountering holistic management has been around human change and supporting human change and what we knew long before we encountered holistic management was the way to regenerate planet earth is to support the shift of the human mind to the place where it has the capacity to manage the complexity that we've created for ourselves so that we can make better quality decisions that will result in uh, regenerating earth. And so when we found holistic management, what happened was um, Savory Institute gave a a conference in London, which we didn't attend, we didn't know about it, but one of Christopher's uh, good friends attended and said, oh, this is right up your street. And um, then Christopher checked into it and he said to me immediately, oh, Sheila, this is what I've been looking for for 20 years and I haven't found it. I think we found it finally, was this framework for helping people move into this capacity for holistic decision-making. And I, he had me look at it and I go, you want me to do what? Because I was vegan at the time. And I said, you want us to help people manage livestock? Are you out of your mind? And he said, oh yeah, really? This is really the real thing. You got to believe me. It's right. And so he had me watch the Ellen Savory TED Talk. And immediately the next day we applied to become a hub and the rest is history. So it's been completely life-changing for me, I have to say.
0: Wow, that's a really compelling story. (laughs) I love that turnaround and change in perspective. Sarah, how about yourself? I know that you have recently gotten into ranching, relatively speaking, and how has this framework informed the way that you run your ranch?
3: Sure, um, you know, I think I had the, thank you for including me. It's incredible. I worked with Sheila and Precious um, in all sorts of different capacities over the years. So it's really fun to be in this role now. Um, I had the amazing opportunity to see, you know, practitioners in Zimbabwe or in the UK or wherever in the world who are managing holistically and obviously something different uh, was happening and and then getting to learn from Alan himself. But for, for me, it really starts with the holistic context. Um, Holistic context is the cornerstone of anything else in holistic management, right? Because how can we possibly make decisions if we don't have a guiding light of what we are trying to create uh, and what we want those outcomes to look like? And so even before I jumped into full-time ranching, I still had a personal holistic context. My husband and I had a family holistic context. Um, Now we have a holistic context for the business itself. When apprentices come to the ranch, the first thing we do is form a holistic context between ourselves and the apprentice. Um, Before contracts are created on leased land, uh, holistic contexts are created with the landowners. And then we start talking about legal contracts. and it's game changing. I mean, when you take the time to sit down and build that cornerstone, that every other decision is then going to look back on. Um, and when you do your testing questions on making decisions, you have a cornerstone of of what those testing questions are actually, you know, leading you towards. It's game changing, and it also, you know, allows. I feel like myself. Um, to get a kind of a bigger perspective, you know, it's so easy. I feel like in any sort of daily work um, and especially in ranching to almost just get in survivor mode and to, to do what's been working, you know, like, this is what I know this is what we've done before. We're just going to drive, drive, drive ahead because we're so busy. We just got to go, go, go. And getting in the business like that and in the logistics and and work, sometimes we lose sight of, wait, do we have to do it this way or, if we did it a different way, uh, or are we losing something? Are we losing a quality of life? Are we losing, you know, um, ecological health that we could have if we did it differently? So, anyways, I think having that holistic context—that's a living, breathing document that is, you know, reviewed at least on an annual basis with all parties included—just um, allows an incredible perspective um, for life in general and for any operation.
0: Very well said. And I think between the three of you, you've made a great case for how widely applied this can be. And though, Sarah, you're directly applying it to what people know holistic management most for, which is animal grazing. Precious, you've been teaching this way of making decisions for a really long time. Can you tell us how far it can extend beyond what it's known for in in animal grazing mostly, and some of the I guess, out of the box applications that you've seen this become successful in helping to manage?
1: Um, so I work mostly with uh, agro-pastoral farmers. And um, I think what, i would just build on what Sarah said on the importance of actually using the holistic context as your guide in decision-making and having, Literally progressive conversations, um, because sometimes when you work with diverse groups, you have diversities of religious differences, political differences that can really cloud um, decision making or cloud, you know, the desires that people have. But then when you first use the holistic context to spell out. Um, Every, what everyone desires in terms of for their lives and um, their future, their children, we are finding out almost every day that people want the same thing, um, regardless of any other social difference. But unfortunately, the social differences that we have actually can become a blockade of all the other possibilities. So this... Yeah, so this is just in brief how we've used it. And sometimes you enter into a community that has rife conflict, um, but dialogue is very important. It's very critical. I, I, I personally think that um, actually working through the complexities of actually holistically planning grazing, holistically planning land use or, or use of any any kind is is technically easier than to actually get people to converse and dialogue in a way that will make them then be able to actually then plan. So I think it's been useful for social cohesion and building relations and commitment.
0: Nice. And Sheila, with your work through the 3LM organization based in the UK, With these other applications for business building and especially financial management, can you go through some of the steps to defining a holistic context aside from managing the animals, perhaps applying it, like I said, to to business, to the finance of of an operation?
2: Um, Sure. But can I just tell you an example? I have one for the question you gave, Precious, that's really interesting.
0: Oh, by all means.
2: Yeah. We trained a French chef in holistic management and uh, he went home and he wanted to practice holistic management right away. And his wife is a um, massage therapist uh, for health uh, benefit and she rides a scooter from client to client and gives this massage therapy in people's houses. And she was exhausted and never took a vacation and never took a holiday, um, working really long hours. And he said, we're going to use a holistic grazing plan to get you on a better track. And so they used the holistic grazing plan. And the result was she worked then instead of five days a week, four days a week. And instead of 10 hours a day and coming home exhausted. She was leaving home around 10 in the morning and coming home like between four and five in the afternoon. And instead of having no holiday, she was um, getting six weeks of holiday because they planned it in. And then instead of making little profit, she made a lot of profit. So I guess that answers both the questions.
0: It did, but it's very mystical. I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit because it sounds like they just waved a wand and then her life was better. Can you break that down about how she started to achieve those things?
2: Yeah. So when you're using a, a grazing chart and in- and following the Abe Memoir of Holistic Plan Grazing, you're managing complexity. And the grazing chart actually was inspired by the work of um, the British military. And they were moving large, um, you know, armies across large land masses, which is, complex in the way that it is complex to move animals across land masses. You're just managing a whole bunch of information. And um, it's hard for the human mind or even a computer, it's it's hard for a computer to figure out how to manage all the complexity that that involves. So a grazing chart is big. It's an A1 size, like a poster size sheet of paper. And then there's all these little pockets where you put information about what you're managing. And then you can see it all on one great big page, all the constraints, it's a lot of constraints that you're dealing with. And then it becomes obvious to you, oh, I need to start here and then I would go here and then I would go here. And then you eventually get to a problem, you go, you rub it all out and you go, oh, got to start over again until you finally make a, a route that um, isn't going to make sense this year and because you know the farm is a different farm every year you got to change it up but the same would be true for planning a, a route through the city of Bordeaux to deliver massage therapy there's lots of constraints and they would have been able to put them on the grazing chart and then work out what is a logical route? that would minimize travel time and and de-stress her and like for example you could put on here on in Bordeaux don't go through these parts of town at this time of day (laughs) and that would save a lot of time if you knew that right
0: Yeah, that's good. That gives us an idea of certainly a context that we're not used to looking at this framework through, or at least it's not as as well known. But it would be somewhat remiss if we didn't focus somewhat on animal grazing because of that reason. So Sarah, since you're the one who's actively working at grazing animals, can you tell us about how you've applied this decision-making process to not just manage your animals in a way that Uh, is conducive to your business, but also regenerative for the landscape that you're managing.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, Right now we are in the worst drought in the last hundred years. Um, We're in, for those of you who don't know, I'm in the U.S. and Colorado, Southwest Colorado specifically, Um, and uh, just really stressful time for water. Um, I might run out of water, like stock water, drinking water this year, water that I've had um, available for months to flood irrigate hundreds of acres. Um, I don't have at all. So in those pastures, I'm getting maybe 25% growth of forage of what I get on a average year. Um, and so when things like that happen, uh, the grazing plan is critical because it allows me to take a step back to actually look what's going on in each of my pastures to get creative um, to make a plan as far as where I need to be, when, um, to pay better attention to whether pastures are ready even to be grazed. And realistically in a year like this, I am going to hammer and overuse probably all of my pastures this year. I'm going to eat the drought reserve because this is the drought. Um, and when that happens, you know, the amazing thing about holistic management and the grazing plan is, to give us visual on the consequences. So lots of times we make decisions, you know, and because of managing complexity, there are unintended consequences. This allows me to make intended consequences. (laughs) So I know, for example, that I'm currently at springtime here, And I am currently hammering, uh, one pasture, totally overusing it. You know, every time a new piece of grass is coming up, it's getting bit, but I need to stay there because the rest of the pastures are not ready. And I will do more damage by going, uh, and eating those, you know, biting those plants before those plants have recovered to, you know, a stage two, stage three growth by biting it. Now I will do more long-term damage if I go. So. Next year, when I pull out my grazing plan, there will be notes. There'll be notes that say, you know, this pasture you were in much too long last spring. Don't be here next spring. Because different than rotational grazing, you know, rotational grazing people think they make this rotation, they set the schedule, and that's where they go when. And it's kind of a repeat system, right? But lots of times, then you end up being in the same place at the same time with the same behavior year over year over year. And sometimes that can actually cause worse long term consequences. So for example, if I came back next spring and repeated what I'm currently doing in this one pasture, I'm pointing that way because the pasture is that way. Um, then if I did that each year, eventually that pasture is going to turn to bare ground and sagebrush. But if I do it one year and next year I give it you know, extra time to regrow and I am somewhere else in the spring, that pasture will recover. Uh, And in fact, it might even recover better because there's going to be such a concentration of dung and urine and organic matter from feeding hay up there right now. Um, But my point, I mean, those are really integrate, you know, like details on my operation specifically. But the point is that the grazing plan allows me kind of like what Sheila was saying. It allows me to see it as a whole and plan those moves intentionally. And then the next year I have this documented resource of what happened when this pasture was underused, this pasture was overused. This pasture, you know, um, uh, herd of a hundred elk were in it for an entire month because they were pushed down from the higher elevations looking for feed. You know, all those sort of complexities that happen when managing land and livestock. Or hey, remember when you went on that, uh, you know, week-long trip and you didn't feel comfortable having the animals in this pasture, so you left them here a week too long. Um, that's all part of it, right? Because I'm not just managing land and livestock, I'm also managing my life. And so I need to make note of all those things in the grazing plan and plan accordingly. Does that answer the question?
0: It does. And it gives some really important examples. Like you were mentioning, the severity of the drought that you're going through is not something that people have reference to. A lot of them associate holistic management with rotational grazing as if they were the same thing. Mm -hmm. And Precious, because you have so much experience teaching this in also quite a brittle climate, can you tell us some of those key differences kind of expanding on what Sarah mentioned and Mm. also some of the differences with conventional management of livestock, especially from your region of Zimbabwe?
1: Thank you, um, Oliver. I just wanted to build on what Sarah so nicely put Um, I think just also expressing the importance of actually planning on a chart uh, than just um, a calendar. Because as Sheila and Sarah have said, the chart captures a lot more than um, just land issues, but it's animal needs, land needs and farmer needs as well. Um, So it manages for both social, economic and biological systems to thrive. Um, and there's no way to plan that only in your head. So you 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 want to do it like that? In it's a very you know very simplified form that we use as um, communal farmers, and I think even for ranchers like uh, Sarah, you can literally follow through what this is communicating to you. And even, even if Sarah needed to immediately rush somewhere, someone can literally use that chart. To keep the bison moving and um, and what's important i wanted to capture the fact that every time you are doing any plan at all in living systems because of the complexities you do it from such a, a humble perspective of always assuming that you are wrong <laughs> and that helps you really become a student and monitor Um, Diligently the processes that the land or your organization is giving you as a feedback so in this case we're talking about holistic plant grazing so when you have implemented your plans you don't just go and sit in the office and like, yeah, let's keep the animals moving. So every day you're consistently monitoring the health of the animal, the health of the land, how much impact the animals have left on the land. Um, do we need to keep moving fast, especially if you're in the growing season, because now you are grazing so that you do not overgraze, but actually get lots of growth. Um, so that's recovery. And that looks different everywhere, uh, which will help me also dive into your question of uh, brittle mm-hmm. environments. I'm in an environment where um, precipitation is very uh, limited, but also um, really happens, rainfalls here happen in such a short space of time. I'll just say maybe we have solid rainfall of about three months, and then the rest of the year is dry. So that means every time when it rains, biological systems are really very active and, you have lots of growth because the temperatures are also good and moisture is present. And so now when your animals uh, visit that land and they graze, it's prudent to always make sure that they move as quick so that you have your recovery periods. And here, we we always start at at least 90 days recovery periods before we can go back to um, bring our animals back to actually graze the plants again. Um, So in the non-growing season, Uh, In some parts of the world, people can have snow, which is some sort of moisture, but maybe the temperatures cause uh, growth to be slow. So we call that non-growing season because there is little or no growth at all. So in holistic management, people usually classify seasons as rainy season and dry season. But for us, we have growing and non-growing because it is around... Um, management of your land and also uh, monitoring your ecosystem processes, how effective are they in this time of year and what sort of management game you need to put up with your tool, whether you're using sheep, bison or kettle. Um, So in the non-growing season here, things really get dry and brittle and grasses and uh, plant twigs literally break. So that means that biological decay slows down or sometimes it's not present at all. And so um, these grass plants need um, megafauna, which is uh, we have buffalo, zebras that have evolved with our grasslands. But then we thankfully have a tool of livestock to then, with their complicated uh, stomachs, to be able to process and help these grasses keep going. So they will eat the grass or trample what they do not eat so that every time their wolves are working the land to open up the grasses so that when it rains again, sunlight and water, and then these grasses can start to shoot again. So in in the non-britual environments, I would say it's, it's not prudent according to what we are learning with the ecosystem processes and all the body of knowledge that is out there, especially in holistic management, that you you do not have to rest your land because then the grass is oxidized and that's what causes deserts to advance. And if you over trample again, that's overexposing your land to lots of animal impact. You pulverize the soil when it rains. You actually face lots of uh, soil erosion. So there's lots of creativity in how the animals will move. We do not have fenced camps here, so people usually herd. We 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 actually go out with our animals. So we are acting as those lions and um, hyenas that will then evolve with our large grazing herbivores in in the wild savanna. Um, and so. That's, that's that mimicry that we are using and really thankful for all the body of knowledge that Alan Savory has so worked well hard and we're learning from all the practitioners now the body of knowledge is really increasing. And uh, communal people here the tribal people, we know these things and so it's lots of just reviving the dialogue and then actually getting going. So I hope that um, that responded.
0: Yeah, fantastic. and. Again, to give a little bit more contrast to the difference in this management style of of animal grazing to what many people consider conventional grazing methods, Um, perhaps, Sheila, would you like to talk about the contrast between those and the way that the landscape tends to respond over time from either your own observations or reports from other practitioners?
2: I'll talk about um, two, I guess, are the most common. Um, One we call set stock grazing or continuous grazing. And that's the most common way of grazing where I live um, in the UK. And all that means is that animals are put in low stock density Um, for a long period of time and they're really self-managing and the consequences of set-stop grazing typically are that um, some plants are overgrazed and then when they get overgrazed they often die and then they get replaced by plants that are less desirable to the animals and then some plants are overrested And um, those become very undesirable to the animals as well. So you end up with a pasture that's quite undesirable and low performing. And it is also contributing to climate change uh, because typically what will happen is a farmer will do uh, several different things to try to regenerate the capacity of that field. One is they'll apply nitrogen fertilizer, another might be they plow the field and reseed the field, and both of those things are going to be contributing to climate change. The other kind of um, grazing then that's getting more common um, is what we call rotational grazing and rotational grazing there's many 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 varieties of it but it's a very simplified and reductionist way of doing holistic planned grazing and what's very 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 common when people do that is they might have success in a good year but when they get to a bad year like this year that's when they run into problems so like Sarah's facing drought Here um, in this part of the world, we're facing a very cold spring where we had the driest April on record and now we've got like the wettest May on record. And so the weather, and it's been cold through both. And so every farmer's run out of grass here already in the spring. Um, And lots of people with rotational grazing, they have grazed their entire farm and they don't know what to do. Um, and it's only May. <laughs> and so, um, with holistic management, what is different is we're managing the complexity and we're monitoring every single day. So, even though we made a plan, we use the feedback loop and we assume we're wrong. As Precious said, you know, we have this humility. So, we assume we're wrong and we monitor the grass growth every day. Um, And if it's wrong, if we, you know, nature is doing different to what we planned, then we take controlling action, you know, long before the whole farm runs out of grass, we would be able to take a controlling action. And then if it's still going wrong, then we take, we completely replan. And uh, we've got lots of examples where that's really um, enabled people to get out of a bad situation and, and just not get to the place that you get to with set stock crazing and rotational grazing.
0: Yeah, those complexities need to be uh, adapted to. And it sounds like with the heavy emphasis on management and adaptation to what's happening in the environment, it sets it apart from these others that are perhaps technique heavy, where there's a set playbook of how to run things and it's not as flexible as, as this is. Um, So, Sarah, given the the challenges that you're going through, and also some of the perceptions from from people who don't know the, the intricacies of this, and talk a lot about stocking rates, and there's controversy over this, there's people who say that damaged lands need to have less animals and higher stocking rates are going to contribute to desertification and degradation of soils or compaction, can you give some I guess, more nuance into that conversation so we can understand a better picture of what's happening in the ecology itself?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first, I think that we see this a lot in the United States with federally owned lands and leases. When people, what we call BLM um, land, they have, I'm sure you're familiar with this. So the government sets what they think should be the stocking rate. And then if you get the lease on that land, you are required to follow that stocking rate. However, it is getting better where, by showing with the grazing plan um, and demonstrating on other pieces of land, what can be done, um, some of that is changing. But I think it goes back to what Sheila said about a paradigm shift in thinking that the ruminant animals on the land are what is causing the problem. And the problem is not the amount of animals on the land, it's how those animals are being managed. And so with holistic planned grazing, we talk about getting the animals in the right place at the right time with the right behavior. Um, And so if you think about it with bison specifically, there were millions, millions of bison, you know, roaming through our country um, in places that now you look at and there's thousands of acres and there's, you know, 10 cows out there um, basically doing what Sheila was just just explaining. Um, and it's obviously not working because the land uh, is degrading quickly. So I think um the timing, and Precious talked about it too, is like that movement and with the grazing plan and and then the feedback loop, which Sheila was talking about. Like those are so key to knowing if your animals should still be there or not. Not necessarily the amount, because If there's a lot, a lot of animals on there, but they're there for a short amount of time, they're gonna bite what they're supposed to bite. They're gonna dung, urine trample, and then they're gonna go. Um, And so it's about the timing of it more than it is about the quantity of animals. Um, In a drought, you tend to slow things down um, because, for various reasons, but the, the grazing tends to slow down because recovery is taking longer. And that recovery time is what's the most important. I think it's also, um, helpful to talk about overuse. So if a, if an animal is biting a plant, I'll just talk about this briefly, but you know, so if an animal is biting a plant And that plant starts, this is roots and this is a plant. So if that animal bite, 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 bites this plant, and then that plant starts to regrow, as it starts to regrow, if that animal comes back and bites it again, when it started to regrow, that plant thinks, oh my gosh, I'm under attack. I better pull energy from my roots so I can keep growing. And then it gets, you know, starts going, gets bit again. Oh, I'm going to pour more energy from those roots. And eventually that plant gets pulled out because it's pulled so much energy out of its roots, right? Those root systems got shorter and shorter. That happens when what, what Sheila was talking about, there's set stocking rates and there's partial rest. Um, and so it's all about timing. If those animals have to stay there and it just gets bit, it gets bit again, gets bit again, it gets bit again, it's getting really short, but it hasn't started to regrow at any point. That's okay. You can leave and that plant will recover. But what happens is when the timing gets messed up or when there's so much space. So imagine if there was so much space and that in one pasture and one area, and that plant was bit and you know, two weeks later, because nobody's moving those animals. So two weeks later, this animal's wandering around, this plant has started to regrow, come back and bite it again. And now we're in that cycle of having a negative effect on the land. And it's actually worse when the animals are just sitting there in a huge paddock or pasture and can come back and bite things after they've started to regrow than it is. If it's all smashed into that paddock, everybody thinks it's bit and then moves on. I hope that makes sense. And those sort of complexities are what make the grazing planning chart so critical because you can actually see, all right, this many animals are going to be in this size paddock with this much forage. They're going to hit it like this. And then we're going to move on. And then the feedback loop is actually going out there on the ground and seeing what's happening. Um, I I know producers, holistic management practitioners who will say, you know they try to get a hoof print in like every square foot of pasture, they want an animal all over the place, fighting everything, and then moving on. Um, and then we, and then it's all a grand, you know, learning demonstration and experiment. There's all sorts of ex- little experiments that are going on on my ranch where you know I hit it really hard because I was trying to clear out some woody species, but. Did I hit it too hard and now I'm going to cause capping and thistle is going to grow back or did I hit it just right and now we're going to have perennial grass instead of thistle. And that's a continuous learning process, um, which is both exciting and, you know, sometimes nerve wracking, but I have a friend and mentor Andrea Malmberg, who says um, making mistakes is fun.
0: Well, and it seems like, first of all, there's a ton of variables that you have to account for, and you could probably never do that same experiment twice and certainly not in the same spot, right? And then on top of that, one of the benefits that I see from the Savory network is that there is a large community of people who are sharing information, sharing experiences, and constantly comparing data and what's going on. So that kind of leads me to the criticisms of holistic management from various sides. There's backlash from people who think that there are downsides to the stocking rights that we talked about. There are conflicting scientific studies and I have seen defenses of this and I have seen criticisms. It seems like with the complexity that's being managed in all of these systems, you can see them from multiple angles. And so I'm actually going to open it up to the three of you to kind of talk amongst yourselves about what you've seen of these criticisms, how you would defend them. And at what point do you take a critical look and make sure that you're not glossing over things and getting into kind of a pedagogy or just kind of a, a blind adherence to a methodology that's worked in the past. So I'll let the three of you discuss that from, from what you've seen and observed.
3: <laughs> Nobody wants, Nobody wants to go first. Nobody wants to
2: go I'm I'm happy to start and then whoever likes to go next. Um, First of all, I want to just say the criticisms are few. They're very tiny in number. And what it is, it's a worldview gap. That's what it is. And it's by and large coming from academia. Academia who are practicing out of date thinking that they're the ones who are threatened by new ideas, because if they had to admit that they were wrong, then they have to admit that, you know, the last n years of teaching, they were wrong. And I didn't really believe that that was the case until I encountered it face-to-face in my own uh, country. So, I was told by many people oh you need to work with the university you need to work with the university if you want this to spread so we did we contacted many and none of them were interested and finally someone said oh you need to go to this one in scotland they'll be the ones that will bite they'll want it so i looked up on the faculty and looked for the one who the faculty member who was already thinking very holistically and i had a two hour meeting with him, it was wonderful. He loved everything I said. He said, oh, I agree 100% with everything you're saying. I said, great, can you help us get holistic management into your university? And immediately the conversation went negative. He said, no, I can't do that. And I said, oh, and I just spent two hours in his office. I said, why is that? And he said, well, I'm five years away from retirement And if I put my neck out and introduce this here, it's contradictory to everything that's being taught at this university. It's very likely that I would lose my job and I would lose my pension and I can't afford to do that. And then um, a few months later, um, we met somebody at our local university And a young man, and he was the head of um, agriculture, uh, and um, he was very interested. And he said, oh, come on over. I want to talk with you. We spent a couple hours talking with him. And again, we said, you're really interested. Would you like us to introduce holistic management in your university? He said, I can't because I'm the breadwinner for my young family. And if I lose my job, my whole family doesn't eat and I can't put my neck on the line. So that's what it's all about. It's individuals who feel threatened and can't change.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I'd really love to appreciate um, Sheila's uh, commentary um, because I think every time, sometimes we be on a platform like this, um, you go all out and really like express how uh, when we talk about holistic decision-making, you're not making any other work inferior, but you are also just bringing out the importance of management and also really the importance of taking um, um, Serious, the issue of complexities and not assuming that living systems are machines that will respond in a certain way when a certain tool or action is used. And um, that whole school of thinking, after saying everything, um, i faced a certain situation where people from the academic world will just pick one thing. Again, um, it were just to confirm out of context again and just run with oh yeah so you just said we should use kettle even if even if you try and really express that i am by no means prescribing because once i prescribe let's just cut it it stops to be holistic because holistic really is about contextual relevance and what has caused an ecosystem, an organization to thrive that individual potential of that place, what causes those systems to continue to evolve. But then the the body of knowledge of reductionism is so strong right now in our societies. But thankfully I think slowly individuals are starting to get a head start and actually appreciate it. I I always consider, I'm not a, a very deep scientist, but the simplest things that we've done, it works. Sometimes that's all I have to say. Like there are lots of working examples. I have, I have a friend in the U.S. and her name is Beth. She had to let go of a leased land because she was using holistic plant grazing. So she had, she was leasing land for many years to to take care of the same number of animals that she has. But as the as her pasture improved, she let go of land that she was paying for, and she still takes care of her own animals with the same amount of number, but same type of land and piece of land, just management that has improved the ecosystem processes and growth. And, and now she can take care of more animals, basically, in a sense. And, and you know, you can't argue with those results. It's it's a lot of diligence of management. The issue is management. It's never the tool or the person, but our management approaches. Um, So in in that sense, I think it really shows us how uh, as a world we continue to advance in terms of technology, we've taken people to the moon, Um, you know, we're really advancing in that sense. But then if you look at the natural disasters, they are as huge as our successes in other technological spheres. So that means there's, you can almost see that there's a small disconnect in the fact that I think as humans, we've evolved not to know what to do with things that self-organize. You know, when someone dies, it's not the end of life. You self-organize, you become manure, you feed the soil, and then you continue to live. So death is not the end, but there's continuous living. And so that's the same understanding that things that we manage and things that we make are totally different in how they function and how we should handle them. Um, So the criticisms will continue to be there, but I think the body of knowledge is also increasing and thankfully we're getting lots of um, researchers now getting interest, but sometimes academia won't accept holistic plant grazing. They'll accept all the other terms. Um, So those are also semantics again, but we're just hoping for, there's lots of hope and lots of excitement, which I think um, I'm choosing to really choose at this point. (laughs) yeah
3: so i feel like i'm um taking off my rancher hat now and putting back on my pr for savory hat (laughs) but here's here's i think a huge crux of the challenge when it comes to the scientific community and um sort of scientific criticisms science in itself is reductionist and that's not necessarily a bad thing um the scientific method is reductionist And in order for something to be seen as proven scientifically, it needs to be replicable, right? Like we need to be able to say, this is what I did. And when I did it X amount of times, this is the results that I got. Um, That's essentially how science works, right? That's how we test things. We have controls, you know, how we can test hypothesis, et cetera, right? Super basic. But in essence, it needs to be replicable we follow these steps, we got these results, therefore it is replicable, then we can prove that it works. That tends to be how science works. Holistic management is a decision-making framework. Like Precious said, it is not a prescription. And you would not believe how many calls we would get even at the Savory Institute that would say, I've got X amount of acres, X amount of hectares, X amount of animals, how many pastures should I have and how long should I keep them in each one? I have no idea, you know? Like I have no idea how much those pastures produce, what your animals' behavior is like, how much rainfall you got this spring. Like I have no idea there's so many decisions and complexity that goes into that answer. But what we want as humans tends to be a prescription like that. And if we could make it a prescription, then we could duplicate it, get the same results and say, "Check, it works scientifically." Um but sometimes when I hear like, Oh, you know, we practiced holistic management and it didn't work. My next question is like, well, what exactly didn't work because this is a decision making framework. So did the decision making process not work or did the process of making decisions work, but you got results that were different than what you were hoping for, you know what exactly didn't work. Um, Because nothing about holistic management is is, uh, do X, Y, and Z and get A, B, and C results. So that being said, there are lots of peer reviewed, et cetera, et cetera, scientific publications saying that if you manage livestock in a way you know, that uh, mimics Ecosystems takes into consideration these different practices, we can get up to 40% more land productivity. That's been seen. 30% more water retention. That's been seen. That these things are possible by using this decision-making framework. So, you know, and and again, those were in specific contexts with all that complexity. Um, And and then I think I just, I feel like I really need to add that, you know, it is really contextually relevant. So one of, and a lot of times I'll hear, well, that worked there, but it wouldn't work here. Um, and that's a, a continual thing that's said literally around the world, it, all the way down to in my town, there's a amazing farm and ranch generational in town Durango that's been doing holistic management for 30 years, but they have hundred percent of their property is senior irrigation water rights. And so people where I live 15 miles away called the dry side say, well, they can do holistic management over there, but it wouldn't work out here because we don't have that same water. So what has been amazingly powerful is demonstrated local demonstration sites. So if I'm doing it here and it's working here, my neighbor next door can't very well say that wouldn't work here. Right. Um, But there is again, a pride and an ego. They don't usually come and say, I want help. They maybe come over and just kind of you know, want to have dinner and kind of start just asking some questions about what's going on over there uh, that's making it look different. One of the biggest um, moments for me was actually when I was at Allen's ranch where I first met Precious, the Africa Center for Holistic Management. And we had toured that whole ranch and talked about what had been going on, et cetera. And then we went, I don't know how many miles away, Precious, like 15 miles away, maybe to huangi National Park. And holy smokes, same exact rainfall, okay, but no grass anywhere. It looked like a desert, dry creek beds, bare ground everywhere. And I mean, we're talking five foot tall grasses and and clear running streams, 15 miles away on Allen's ranch. The only thing that was different was the management. And for me, that like black and white demonstration right next to each other blew my mind. Um, And so I've now gotten to see that repeatedly in multiple contexts all over the world. But I think um, as far as changing people's minds, you know, I don't, I don't have any desire to fight the scientific community, you know, um, Because for me, it really has to do with a local level of people's livelihoods, surviving, um, what we can do to sequester carbon and fight climate change. Um, And that's going to happen. Whether or not there's a peer-reviewed article that supports it or not, it's going to happen. And so we do, I use what's called ecological outcome verification. It is a scientific methodology. Um, looking at empirical data to prove carbon sequestration and regenerative results. So I do go all in on the hard science, but that does not equal holistic management, right? Because holistic management and even EOV are very agnostic to practices um, because it is a very um, contextually relevant tool. So I hope that answers it. That's a very, I feel like, messy question you asked, but hopefully that helped. (laughs)
0: Well, I was trying to see if you would trip yourselves up in <laughs> identifying some of the criticisms and, and and going back and forth with that. But everything that you've said really, I've seen it in, in many other aspects, uh, like Precious and I both work with ecosystem restoration camps and adv- advising restoration plans for people who are new to this. And you get a lot of the same questions. Uh, how, what pl- trees should I plant here? Uh, how should I implement key line design here? And it's like, I don't know give me more information. What are you trying to achieve? And and there's so many more questions to answer. And, you know, there's, there's outcomes that are going to be totally different from one property to another or a different owner to another. And that is often missed in this reductionist mindset of trying to verify very specific results and minimizing the amount of variables, which, like you said, this is a paradigm that does not mesh with the natural world. Things don't play out so cleanly and so simply as we would want to be able to study the minute aspects of what it is we're trying to achieve. And that's really well said. So if you wanna hear more from this panel and the questions that our listeners asked, you can find the full recording on our Climate Farmers YouTube channel. Now, thanks again to the panelists, Precious Beery. Sheila Cook, and Sarah Gleason, who are all working tirelessly to create a healthier and more resilient farming culture around the world. Now, I highly recommend that you check out the Global Savory Hub Network to see what resources and experienced practitioners are available in your area of the world. You can find all that information as well as online courses, their resource library, and more at savory.global. And a special thanks to the team at Climate Farmers for organizing the event, and to all of the wonderful people who showed up to participate in the chat. Now as great as it is to include multiple experienced perspectives on this topic that we covered in the panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It'll always be free to join, all you have to do is follow the links to our Discord on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website, The benefit of joining, of course, through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum is, How do you currently manage your decisions and the complexity of your life and work? How well do the decision makers in your life understand the core values and motivations that you work from, and how well do you understand theirs? Now, though we live in a complicated world of artificial infrastructure and machines, most of us would say that the things which we value most come from the natural world, the people in our lives, the communities we live in, and the natural environment in which we depend. The only way to interact with so much complexity is through understanding and the realization that our personal success is inextricably linked to the health and the success of all of them too. And don't forget that you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests in the Discord forum as well. And that's our show this week. So until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future and I'll be right by your side along the way.